Chapter Twelve of Montezuma's Daughter, by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Seventy Nine. Chapter Twelve, Thomas comes to shore. For an hour or more, I stood craning my neck upwards to seek for the priest. At length, when I was about to sink back into the hold for I could stand no longer in that cramped posture, I saw a woman's dress pass by the hole in the deck, and knew it for one who was worn by a lady who had escaped with me in the boat. "'Signora!' I whispered. "'For the love of God, listen to me. It is I, Delia, who am chained down here among the slaves.' She started. Then, as the priest had done, she sat herself down upon the deck, and I told her of my dreadful plight, not knowing that she was acquainted with it, and of the horrors below. Alas, Signor, she answered, they can be of little worse than those above. Her dreadful sickness is raging among the crew. Six are already dead, and many more are raving in their last madness. I would that the sea had swallowed us with the rest, for we have been rescued from it only to fall into hell. Already my mother is dead, and my little brother is dying. Where is the priest? I asked. Oh, he died this morning, and has just been cast into the sea. Before he died I spoke of you, and prayed me to help you if I could. But his words were wild, and I thought that he might be distraught. And indeed, how can I help you? "'Perhaps you can find me food and drink,' I answered. "'And for our friend, God rest his soul. "'What of the Captain Sarkeda? Is he also dead?' "'No, Signor, he alone is recovering of all whom the scourge has smitten. "'And now I must go to my brother. "'But first I will seek food for you.' She went, and presently returned with meat and a flask of wine which she had hidden beneath her dress. And I ate, and I blessed her. For two days she fed me thus, bringing me food at night. On the second night she told me that her brother was dead, and of all the crew only fifteen men and one officer remained untouched by the sickness, and that she herself grew ill. Also, she said that the water was almost finished, and there was little food left for the slaves. After this she came no more, and I suppose that she died also. It was within twenty hours of her last visit that I left this accursed ship. For a day none had come to feed or tend the slaves, and indeed many needed no tended, for they were dead. Some still lived, however though so far as I could see, the most of them were smitten with the plague. I myself had escaped the sickness, perhaps because of the strength and natural healthiness of my body, which has always saved me from fevers and diseases, fortified as it was with good food that I had obtained. But now I knew that I could not live long. Indeed, Chained in this dreadful charnel-house, I prayed for death to release me from the horrors of such existence. The day passed as before in sweltering heat, 
unbroken by any air or motion. The night came at last, made hideous by the barbarous ravings of the dying. But even there and then I slept, and dreamed that I was walking with my love in the Vale of Waveney. Towards the morning I was awakened by the sound of clanking iron, and opening my eyes I saw that men were at work, by the light of the lanterns, knocking the fetters from the dead and the living together. As the fetters were loosed, a rope was put round the body of the slave, and dead or quick, he was hauled through a hatchway. Presently, a heavy splash in the water without told the rest of the tale. Now I understood that all the slaves were being thrown overboard because of the want of water, and in the hope that it might avail to save from the pestilence those of the Spaniards who still remained alive. I watched them at their work for a while, till there were but two slaves between me and the workers, of whom one was living and the other was dead. Then I bethought me that this would be my fate also, to be cast quick into the sea, and counsel myself as to whether I should declare that I was whole from the plague, and pray them to spare me, or whether I should suffer myself to be drowned. The desire for life was strong, but perhaps it may serve to show how great were the torments from which I was suffering, and how broken was my spirit by misfortunes and the horrors around me when I say that I determined to make no effort to live, but rather to accept death as a merciful release. And indeed, I knew that there was little likelihood of such attempts being of avail, for I saw that the Spanish sailors were mad with fear, and had but one desire, to rid of the slaves who consumed the water, and as they believed, had bred the pestilence. So I said such prayers as came into my head, and although with a great shivering of fear, for the poor flesh shrinks from its end, and the unknown beyond it, however high may be the spirit, I prepared myself to die. Now, having dragged away my neighbour in misery, the living savage, the men turned to me, they were naked to the middle, and worked furiously to be done with their hateful task, sweating with the heat, and keeping themselves from fainting by draughts of spirit. "'This one is alive also, and does not seem so sick,' said a man, as he struck the fetters from me. "'Alive or dead, away with the dog,' answered another hoarsely, and I saw that it was the same officer to whom I had been given as a slave. "'It is that Englishman.' and he it is who brought us this ill luck. Cast the Jonah overboard, and let him try his evil eye upon the sharks. So be it, answered the other man, and finished striking off my fetters. Those who have come to a cup of water each day do not press their guests to share it. They show them the door. Say your prayers, Englishman, and may they do more good than they have done for most on this accursed ship. Here, this is the stuff to make drowning easy, and there is more of it on board than of water, and he handed me the flask of spirit. I took it and drank deep, and it comforted me a little. Then they put the rope round me, and at a signal 
those on the deck above began to haul till I swung loose beneath the hatchway. As I passed that Spaniard to whom I had given in slavery, and who but now had counselled my casting away, I saw his face well in the light of the lantern, and there were signs on it that a physician could read clearly. Farewell, I said to him, we may meet soon again. Fool, why do you labour? Take your rest, for the plague is on you. In six hours you will be dead. His jaw dropped with terror at my words, and for a moment he stood speechless. Then he uttered a fearful oath, and aimed a blow at me with the hammer he held, which would have swiftly put an end to my suffering, had I not at that moment been lifted from his reach by those who pulled above. In another second I had fallen on the deck, and they slacked the rope. Near me stood two black men, whose office it was to cast us poor wretches into the sea, and behind them, seated in a chair, his face haggard from recent illness, sat de Garcia, fanning himself with his sombrero, for the night was very hot. He recognized me at once in the moonlight, which was brilliant, and said, What? Are you here and still alive, cousin? You are tough indeed. I thought that you must be dead or dying. Indeed, had it not been for this accursed place, I would have seen to it myself. Well, it has come right at last, and here is the lonely lucky thing in this old voyage, that I shall have the pleasure of sending you to the sharks. It consoles me for much, friend Wingfield. So, you came across the seas to seek vengeance on me. Well, I hope that your stay has been pleasant. The accommodation was a little poor, but at least the welcome was hearty. And now it is time to speed the parting guest. Good night, Thomas Wingfield. <coughs> if you should chance to meet your mother presently, tell her from me that I was grieved to have to kill her, for she is the one being whom I have loved. I did not come to murder her, as you have thought, but she forced me to it to save myself, since had I not done so, I should never have lived to return to Spain. She had too much of my own blood to suffer me to escape, and it seems that it runs strong in your veins also, else you would scarcely hold so fast by vengeance. Well, it has not prospered you. And he dropped back into the chair, and fell to fanning himself again with that broad hat. Even then, as I stood under the eve of death, I felt my blood run hot within me at the sting of his coarse taunts. Truly, de Garcia's triumph was complete. I had come to hunt him down, and what was the end of it? He was about to hurl me to the sharks. Still I answered him with such dignity as I could command. You have me at some disadvantage, I said. Now, if there is any manhood left in you, give me a sword, and let us settle our quarrel once and for all. You are weak from sickness, I know, 
but what am I who have spent certain days and nights in this hell of yours? We should be well matched, Garcia. <laughs> Perhaps so, cousin. But where is the need? To be frank, things have not gone over well with me when we stood face to face before, and it is odd. But do you know, I have been troubled with the foreboding that you would be the end of me. That is one of the reasons why I sought a change of air to these warmer regions. But see the folly of foreboding, my friend. I am still alive, though I have been ill, and I mean to go on living. But you are, forgive me for mentioning, you are already dead. Indeed, those gentlemen, and he pointed to the two black men who had taken advantage of our talk to throw into the sea the slave who followed me up the hatchway, are waiting to put a stop to our conversation. Have you any message that I can deliver for you? If so, out with it, for time is short, and that hold must be cleared by daybreak. I have no message to give you from myself, though I have a message for you, de Garcia, I answered. But before I tell it, let me say a word. You seem to have won, wicked murderer as you are, but perhaps the game is not yet played. Your fears may still come true. I am dead, but my vengeance may yet live on, for I leave it to the hand in which I should have left it first. You may live some years longer, but do you think that you will escape? One day you will die as surely as I must die to-night. And what then, de Garcia? <laughs> a truce, I pray you, he said with a sneer. Surely you have not been consecrated, priest. You had a message, you said. Pray deliver it quickly. Time presses, cousin Wingfield. Who sends a message to an, an exile like myself? Isabella de Seguenza, whom you cheated with a false marriage and abandoned, I said. He started from his chair and stood over me. What of her? he whispered fiercely. Only this. The monks walled her up alive with her baby. Walled her up alive? Mother of God, how do you know that? I chanced to see it done, that is all. She prayed me to tell you of her end and the child's, and that she died hiding your name, loving and forgiving. This was all her message, but I will add to it. May she haunt you for ever, she and my mother. May they haunt you through your life and death, through earth and hell. He covered his face with his hands for a moment, then dropping them, sank back into the chair and called to the black sailors. Away with the slave! Why are you so slow? The two men advanced upon me, but I was not minded to be handled by them if I could help it, and I was minded to cause de Garcia to share my fate. Suddenly I bounded at him and gripped him round the middle, 
I dragged him from the chair. Such was the strength that rage and despair gave me that I succeeded in swinging him up to the level of the bulwarks. But there the matter ended, for at that moment the two black sailors sprang upon us both and tore him from my grip. Then seeing that all was lost, for they were about to cut me down with their swords, I placed my hand upon the bulwark and leaped into the sea. My reason told me that I should do well to drown quickly as possible, and I thought to myself that I would not try to swim, but would sink at once. Yet love of life was too strong for me, and so soon as I touched the water, I struck out and began to swim along the side, keeping myself in her shadow, for I feared lest de Garcia should cause me to be shot with at arrows and musket-balls. Presently, as I went, I heard him say with an oath, "'He has gone, and for good this time, but my foreboding went near to coming true after all. Ah, how the sight of that man frightens me!' Now I knew in my heart that I was doing a mad thing, for though, if no shark took me, I might float for six or eight hours in this warm water, yet I must sink at last.' and what would be the struggle have profited me. Still, I swam on slowly, and after the filth and stench of the slave-hold, the touch of the clean water and the breath of the pure air were like food and wine to me, and I felt strength enter into me as I went. By the time I was a hundred yards from the ship, and though those on board could scarcely have seen me, I could still hear the splash of bodies as the slaves were flung from her, and the drowning cries of such among them as still lived. I lifted my head, and looked round the waste of water, and seeing something floating on it at a distance, I swam towards it, expecting that every moment would be my last because of the sharks which abound in these seas. Soon I was near it, and to my joy I perceived that it was a large barrel which had been thrown from the ship, and was floating upright in the water. I reached it, and pushing at it from below, contrived to tilt it so that I caught its upper edge with my hand. Then I saw that it was half full of meal cakes, and that it had been cast away because the meal was stinking. It was the weight of those rotten cakes acting as ballast that caused the tub to float upright in the water. Now. I bethought me that if I could get into this barrel I should be safe from the sharks for a while, but how to do it I did not know. While I wondered, chanced to glance behind me, I saw the fin of a shark standing above the water not twenty paces away, and advancing rapidly towards me. Then terror seized me, and gave me the strength and the wit of despair. Pulling down the edge of the barrow till the water began to pour into it, I seized it on either side with my hands, and lifting up my weight upon them, I doubled my knees. To this hour I cannot tell how I accomplished it, but the next second I was in the cast, with no other hurt than a scraped shin. But though I had found a boat, the boat itself was like to swim for what with my weight, and with the rotten meal, and of the water which had poured over the rim, the edge of the barrel was now an inch above the level of the sea, and I knew that 
did another bucketful come aboard, it would no longer bear me. At that moment also I saw the fin of the shark within four yards, and then felt the barrel shake as the fish struck it with his nose. Now I began to bail furiously with my hands, and as I bailed the edge of the cask lifted itself above the water. When it had risen some two inches, the shark, enraged by my escape, came to the surface, and turning on its side, bit at the tub so that I heard its teeth grate in the wood and iron bands, causing it to heel over and to spin round, shipping more water as it healed. Now I must bail afresh, and had the fish renewed its onset, I should have been lost. But not finding wood and iron to its taste, it went away for a while, although I saw its fin from time to time for the space above an hour. I bailed with my hand, till I could lift the water no longer, then making shift to take off my boot. I bailed with it. Soon the edge of the cask stood twelve inches above the water, and I did not lighten it further, fearing that lest it should overturn. Now I had time to rest and to remember that all this was of no avail, since I must die at last either by the sea or because of thirst, and I lamented that my cowardice had only sufficed to prolong my sufferings. Then I prayed to God to succour me, and never did I pray more heartily in that hour, and when I had finished praying some sort of peace and hope fell upon me. I thought it was marvellous that I should have thus escaped thrice from great perils within the space of a few days, first from the sinking carrack, then from pestilence and starvation in the hold of the slave-ship, and now, if only for a while, from the cruel jaws of the sharks. It seemed to me that I had not been preserved from dangers which proved fatal to so many, only that I might perish miserably at least, and even in my despair I began to hope when hope was folly, though whether this relief was sent to me from above, or whether it was simply that being so much alive at the moment I could not believe that I should soon be dead, is not for me to say. At the least my courage rose again, and I could not even find heart to note the beauty of the night. The sea was smooth as a pond, there was no breath of wind, and now that the moon began to sink, thousands of stars of a marvellous brightness such as we do not see in England gemmed the heavens everywhere. At last there grew pale, and dawn began to flush the east, and after it came the first rays of sunlight. But now I could not see fifty yards around me because of the dense mist that had gathered on the face of the quiet water, and hung there for an hour or more. When the sun was well up and the length of the mist cleared away, I perceived that I had drifted far from the ship, of which I could only see the mass that grew ever fainter, till they vanished. Now the surface of the sea was clear of fog, except in one direction where it hung in a thick bank of vapour, though why it should rest there and nowhere else I could not understand. Then the hot sun grew, and my sufferings commenced. 
for except the draught of spirits that had been given me in the hold of the slave-ship, I had touched no drink for a day and a night. I will not tell them all in particular detail. It is enough to say that those can scarcely imagine them who have never stood for an hour after hour in a barrel, bareheaded and parched with thirst, while the fierce heat of the tropical sun beat down on them from above, and was reflected upward from the glassy surface of the water. In time, indeed, I grew faint and dizzy, and could hardly save myself from falling into the sea, and at last I sank into a sort of sleep or insensibility, from which I was awakened by the sound of a screaming bird and of falling water. I looked and saw, to my wonder and delight, that what I had taken to be a bank of mist was really low-lying land, and that I was drifting rapidly with the tide towards the bar of the large river. The sound of the birds came from the great flocks of seagulls that were preying on the shoals of fish, which fed at the meeting of the fresh and the salt water. Presently, as I watched, a gull seized a fish that could not have weighed less than three pounds, and strove to lift it from the sea. Failing this, it beat the fish on the head with its beak until it died, and had begun to devour it, when I drifted down upon the spot and made haste to seize the fish. In another moment, dreadful as it may seem, I was devouring the raw food, and never, never have I eaten with better appetite or found more refreshment in a meal. When I had swallowed all that I was able, without drinking water, I put the rest of the fish into the pocket of my coat, and turned my thoughts to the breakers on the bar. Soon it was evident to me that I could not pass them standing in my barrel, so I, I hastened to upset myself into the water and to climb astride of it. Presently we were in the surf, and I had much ado to cling on, but the tide bore me forward bravely, and in half an hour more the breakers were passed and I was in the mouth of the great river. Now fortune favoured me still further, for I found a piece of wood floating on the stream which served me as a paddle, and by its help I was enabled to steer my craft towards the shore, that as I went I perceived to be clothed with thick reeds, in which tall and lovely trees grew in groups, bearing clusters of large nuts in their crowns. Hither to this shore I came without further accident, having spent some ten hours in my tub, though it was but a chance that I did so, because of the horrible reptiles called crocodiles, or by some alligators, with which this river swarmed. But of them I knew nothing as yet. I reached land but just in time, for before I was ashore, the tide turned, and tide and current began to carry me out to sea again, whence assuredly I would never come back. Indeed, for the last ten minutes it took all the strength that I had to force a barrel towards the bank, 
At length, however, I perceived that it floated in not more than four feet of water, and sliding from it I waded to the bank, and cast myself at length there to rest and thank God, who thus far had preserved me miraculously. But my thirst, which now returned upon me more fiercely than ever, would not suffer me to lie thus for long. So I staggered to my feet, and walked along the bank of the river till I came to a pool of rain-water, which on the taste of it proved to be sweet and good. Then I drank, weeping for the joy of the taste of the water, drank till I could drink no more, and let those who stood in such plight remember what water was to them, for no words of mine can tell it. After I had drunk, and washed the brine from my face and body, I drew out the remainder of my fish and ate it thankfully, and thus refreshed, cast myself down to sleep in the shade of a bush bearing white flowers, for I was utterly outworn. When I opened my eyes again, it was night, and doubtless I should have slept on through many more hours had it not been for the dreadful itch and pain that took on every part of my body, till at length I sprang up and cursed in my agony. At first I was at loss to know what occasioned this torment, till I perceived that the air was alive with gnat-like insects which made a singing noise, and settling on my flesh, sucked blood and spat poison into the wounds at one at the same times. These dreadful insects the Spaniards named mosquitoes, nor were they the only flies, for hundreds of other creatures no bigger than a pin's head had fastened on to me like bulldogs to a baited bear, boring their heads into the flesh, where in the end they cause festers. They are named garapatas by the Spanish, and I take them be the young of the tick. Others there were also, too numerous to mention and of every shape and size, though they had this in common, all bit, and were very venomous. Before the morning these plagues had driven me almost to madness, for in no way could I obtain relief from them. Towards dawn I went and lay in the water, thinking to lessen my sufferings, but before I had been there ten minutes I saw a huge crocodile rise up from the mud beside me. I sprang away to the bank, horribly afraid, for never before had I beheld so monstrous and evil-looking a brute to fall again into the clutches of the creatures, winged and crawling, that were waiting for me by their myriads. But enough of these damnable insects! End of chapter 12 Recording by Patrick, 79